my name's Karen O'Connor and you're listening to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, the podcast that looks at all aspects of women's lives from hormones and health to relationships, finance and social justice issues. You can connect with me on social media at at karen If you enjoy this podcast or podcast in general and you've been wondering whether you should start your own podcast, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is to start podcasting. Now let's get right into it. Hello and welcome. I'm here today with Shana Pereira. Welcome, Shana. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. You're, now, I just want to do a bit of an introduction and I'm going to do it based on my knowledge of you because I want you to fill in on this. You're an advertising executive. You've worked on massive things. You were born in Darwin, you now live in LA. Uh, I suspect you've lived in quite a few other places as well and worked with some really interesting people. But what we were going to talk about today is you had a massive health crisis a few years ago and you managed to not only survive in that but create this fabulous medical team around you and support system around you and now you also you're reaching out to support other people that are going through massive physical crises as well talk to me a little bit about your background and then tell me what happened and we can move on from there because there's so many questions I want to ask. I'm wringing my hands in glee. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yes, so I, Christmas Eve 2015, I actually was at home in Darwin and celebrating the fact that I'd won a bunch of awards that year here in uh, Los Angeles and I'd had a big year and I thought, worth going home and just celebrating with the family. And on Christmas Eve, I started to feel unwell and I was rushed to hospital. And that's where I found out that my kidneys were failing. And uh, the doctor had said to me, what do you do for work? And I said, I'm in advertising. And he said, did your back hurt at all? And I said, yeah, I'm in advertising. And he said, okay, have you been tired? And I said, yeah, I'm in advertising. Which part of this does not, is not resonating. I'm in advertising. That's normal. We're supposed to feel all these things. And he was like, no, you're absolutely not supposed to feel all these things. And it turned out that I, my kidneys were failing. Fast forward, we finally found a kidney donor. We actually found her through a podcast that she heard actually. So it was really fun. And she got tested. And then when COVID hit, kidney transplants were optional here. They're they're elective here in the US. And so with COVID, all elective surgeries were on hold. I'm not sure if it was the same in Australia. But given that, it took much longer to get her signed off. She finally got approved in August of 2020. And at the same time she got approved, I found out that one of my kidneys could be cancerous, which was devastating news, as you can imagine, right at that particular point in time, at any time, but at that particular point where I just felt like the hope is here. It had been five years and I thought, oh, we're almost at the home stretch. And now I find out that one of my kidneys 
could have had cancer. Two days later, I found out that my heart was also failing. And so I thought, I am dead. I'm done. This is the universe, God, Buddha, Allah, whoever you believe in is telling me that if I thought that I was supposed to survive, these were the signs that were telling me I was not meant to be here. At that point, my best friend had this epiphany and she said, oh my God, I know exactly what's going to happen. And she prophesied that I was going to have my kidney removed during Thanksgiving, which was a month later, and that was in the month of November, and that I was then going to receive my heart and kidney as a gift from the universe in December and at Christmas, and it was going to be a Christmas miracle, and that we were making a Hallmark movie. And at the time, the movie that I was in was called Final Destination, the movie where the person has a car accident and they barely survive the car accident. And then they go to make themselves a coffee and the microwave blows up and that's what kills them. That's what I felt like I was in that movie. And so I thought her movie sounds way better. And I said, I'm going in her movie. So I called the doctor and I said, listen, we're making a Christmas movie. So we need a Christmas miracle. So we need to hurry this whole thing up. This has to speed up and all this has to happen at Christmas. And at this point it was early December. And he said, mm, it doesn't really work like that, but if anybody can do it, you can do it. And I moved all of my appointments to before Christmas. He gave me a list a mile long of all the clearances I needed to get done. I managed to get all of those clearances done, get all of that stuff done before Christmas, and they put me on the list on Christmas Eve 2020. And that was right in the middle of COVID. So I couldn't have anyone with me. I was in hospital on my own, and we just prayed for a miracle. And the message that I sent out on Facebook was, no matter who you believe in, what religion you're from, Whatever your belief system is, we need all the help we can get because we're praying for this Christmas miracle. And there was about 3,000 people that reached out to me that day with pictures, with flowers, with uh, altars that they'd made for me, candles that people had lit. It was just really amazing. I think it was a year that we all needed some hope. It was a tough year. No one could be with their family that Christmas and it felt like a year that people were like, let's get just one, let's have a good thing happen. And then Christmas Day at 10 p.m., the phone rang and it was my transplant coordinator saying, we have a heart and a kidney for you. And that was meant to take two months at minimum. And the doctors had said, it never happens like that. It was an absolute miracle. They came to celebrate with me the next day, three hours before surgery. They were so excited. I was excited. And all of a sudden I flatline while they're standing there celebrating. And that's when it became a real miracle that we didn't realize that lo and behold, my heart was set to stop the day after Christmas. And they, I flatlined, they gave me chest compressions for two minutes and I had what culture calls an NDE, which is, stands for a near-death experience. 
I call it a death experience because I was clear that I was dead. And I had a whole afterlife experience before coming back and coming back into being, to having the chest compressions. And I woke up and I sat up and I said, guys, relax. I just took a little nap. Where were we? And they said that never, ever happens. And they raced me to the OR. My heart wasn't there yet. It was still in a helicopter coming. So they had to keep my heart beating manually for three or four hours and just hope for the best that when the heart got there, it was good to go. It was, thank goodness. So I got a heart transplant. 12 hours later, I got a kidney transplant and I was walking three days later and here I am. But actually, no more to say. Oh, if somebody saw a Hallmark movie with that in, you'd go, oh, yeah, really nice. It doesn't happen in real life, but it actually did. <laughs> it really did. My doctor had said, you don't have to make anything up. Just make it based on all facts. He was like, it was so dramatic. He said, you don't have to make anything up. Where did the heart and kidney come from? Do you know? I don't know the location, but it was a 29-year-old woman and she passed on Christmas Day, unfortunately. And it's really interesting, like the feeling of being able or having the privilege to live a life for two people mm. is really sacred to me. It's so sacred that like... Little old me from Darwin just has this opportunity to live life, not just for me, but for a 29-year-old that I'd never met, that, is, that her life keeps me alive. It's just such an amazing, sacred connection. And there are so many people in the world that have organ transplants these days that it just is, I think we've heard it so often but I don't think we, we really stop to take in the magic that it is, like the, just the profound connection that it gives us all as humans. We have that saying that we're all human and we're all the same and we're all one. But when you actually think about something like that, that someone else's organs can keep me alive and just slot straight into my body as if they're totally mine, like it just gives a whole different, a whole new meaning to profound partnerships for me. So how long were you actually ill for before the transplant and then after the transplant? And where are you at in terms of recovery? Yeah, so I, my kidneys failed on Christmas Eve 2015. And then I had my heart and kidney transplant Christmas 2020. The kidney that I received had a little bit of damage from the donor that she didn't know about. But obviously, given that I was flatlining, they were like, this was my chance, right? And the kidney did really well for the last couple of years. But this year, it's struggled some and it's, I've gone into kidney failure again. So I'm currently on the kidney transplant list, but it really feels like a touch-up as opposed to feeling ill. Obviously my body has the same symptoms, et cetera. So I don't feel the greatest, but from my mindset, having come and conquered what I have, 
it really feels like this will be a very small and seamless experience comparatively speaking to how far I've come and the rest of my body made a really great recovery it healed quite quickly I think the hardest part that I found in the healing process has been the continuous reminder to my body that we're good we're okay we're good I've obviously felt more fragile than normal And sometimes I ask myself the question of, is that my physical body or is that my thought process around my physical body and what I've experienced? And that's probably been the hardest part of the recovery, frankly. But the actual physicality of it was a couple of months. I was driving February 15 and I was doing cardio all of the month of February. I was walking three or four days later. So it happened very quickly in the actual physical recovery. Because that was where I was going to go next was you had five years of basically living in absolute terror. This is my version of it or where you could go with it. Living in absolute terror of what if your kidney fails right now. And then you got the double whammy with your heart and then you had the near-death experience, whatever you want to call it. And so all of this in the recovery to me, while there's been massive physical challenges, the emotional and mental challenges would have been just tremendous. That's the bit I wanted to go over now. Like, how did you deal with it when you first heard about it and your family? Because your mom, your parents and your family must have been beside themselves Talk to me about that. What happened initially and then how did you move on from there? Yeah, so the initial one, I remember sitting in hospital and it was in Darwin Hospital, the same hospital that I was born and I'd been to a million times. It actually hadn't changed all that much. The floor tiles used to have this, it still does, has this colour pattern where it's follow the green dots and you're going to the ER, follow the yellow dots and you're going to the x-ray rooms or whatever, right? It's got the uh, dots on the ground. And I remember looking at the dots and thinking, I moved out of Darwin when I was 22 years old on a whim and a promise. I had a job and I'd never been to LA and I was going. And I thought, wow, that spirit of adventure and exploration. I went all the way to Los Angeles. I've been to all these amazing countries with these amazing people at work and all these people that I've met only to come back here and die in the exact same spot in where I started. And I thought, what's the point? I I just, like, I've done all this stuff just to land right back into square one. And so that was my first thought. The second thing that happened, people ask me all the time, did I ever have an outer body experience? I actually had my outer body experience the night I found out that my kidneys were failing. Because what happened was I saw myself, I heard myself and saw the way I spoke to myself. And it was a running dialogue of, 
okay, just do these two meetings, then you can eat later. Okay, and you need to pee, I get it, but you've got to just take this phone call, do the phone call first, then go and pee, then grab water, then grab a sandwich, then come back to your desk, then do the next three meetings. Or that machine was just like consistently game planning for me. And whenever that game plan was in place, my basic needs were secondary, tertiary to what I had to get done that day. And that was the second part of it that I noticed immediately that same day was how I spoke to myself. And then the third part was a deafening silence where it was just like, now what? I just was like, I don't even know. I don't even know how I got here. I just was like, I don't even live here. Like this was meant to be a, it was Christmas Eve, first of all. So it was like, I, I don't even, I don't even understand what's happening. What did he just say? It felt, what did he just say? It was such a blur. And each of those moments, I noticed the same thing, different variations, but it was the same thing where it was just like a blur of what did he just say? What is happening right now? <laughs> you know? Thankfully, I've done, I, my stepfather, introduced me to, to personal growth and development early. When I was a teenager, he showed me Tony Robbins and he was very big on, you can do anything you put your mind to. Your mindset is the most important thing. And he really drilled into me that your environment only plays a part, your circumstances only play a part into what you can accomplish if you allow them to. And given those principles, what kicked in for me more than anything was death doesn't need any help from me. If that was my faded outcome, it was going to happen with or without me clearly because all these circumstances were happening. And so that, that was just going to happen. Where I thought my energy needed to be was on good outcomes and what I could control. And I started to discover very quickly that I controlled more than I thought I did. And that's where I got my power. That's where I got my grounding. That's where I got my ability to process it all. So talk to me about that. Which, which are the things that you said to yourself, this I can control? What were they? Yeah, one of them were my thoughts. And what I mean by that is I would have a lot, I, ha I still do. I would have a lot of thoughts about, oh my God, this is it. You've like totally gone and killed yourself. I can't believe you did all these things, like just spiraling thoughts. And the, I, co I couldn't control the fact that I had them, obviously. But what I did know that I could control was how much I was going to believe the stuff that was running through my head. And so I would make a point of, saying to myself these are just thoughts as the same way a radio is playing in the background i don't have to believe it i don't have to like buy into it and i have them it, part parcel with being scared right like all of my stuff was coming up and so that was the first part that i realized that i had a lot more control over my thought process than i thought i did versus in past circumstances, I, my whole being, my whole feelings and emotions, everything would have spiraled along with my mind 
everything would have been a day. It would have been the day would have been over, the month would have been over, and it would just be me trying to make decisions in this world of chaos that could I actually figured out I could actually control by just keeping it in thoughts versus everything else. That was the first thing. The second thing I realized I could control was the relationship that I had with my doctors and even who my doctors were. Often we get allocated doctors, right? Or we have one general practitioner that says you need to go to this specialist and you just go to that doctor that they tell you to. And I learned very quickly that actually I don't have to do that. If that doctor doesn't feel right for me for whatever reason, I have the opportunity to choose and control which doctors that I work with because this is a partnership. This is not a doctor telling me what to do. So I got to know that very quickly. And then the third thing that I realized I could control was my environment, the people that I ingested information from. Everyone had so much love to give. To your point with family, everyone had so much love to give. Everybody wanted to contribute, each one in their own way. And I realized that I had the ability to control that narrative and that information. What I mean by that is I had some family members, for example, that go straight into fix-it mode. Now we have to do this. Now we've got to do this. Now we have to do this. Now we have to do that. And I couldn't handle fix-it mode. And I have some family members that go into reflection and they go into, oh, so if only you had done this before, or you should have done that, or I told you five years ago, you should have done this. So they, and that's their way of showing their care. It's their way of expressing their concern. Some go into meltdown mode where they're scared. And so I had some people that were like, oh my God, what do we do? I'm terrified now. And they would cry around me and just be freaked out. So I learned that I could control that by sharing what I needed. And my one liner was, all I need right now is for you to tell me how much you love me and show me how much you love me. Everything else we'll figure out, but I just need to know that I'm loved. And that gave everybody like a construct of, oh, okay. And I, I'd even go into a little bit further. I need to know I'm loved by the way that like, today I just want to eat these three things. And so if someone can get me these three things, I'll be happy all day. And I just really got used to asking for what I needed very specifically so it could have them be involved and have them feel involved, but at the same time not have me have to take on other people's emotion and reaction and that could be really exhausting at different points. That is a, an incredibly generous way of doing things because the reaction of most people and certainly myself would be okay can you ask such and such a body not to come in because I really can't cope with them right now as opposed to setting them up um, and creating things for them to do and ways for them to act in a way that empowered them and empowered yourself as well that's incredibly generous and creative Thank you. I tried my best. There was definitely times when I was like, I can't handle anybody. It doesn't matter who it is. And nothing wrong with that either. Like we need that too. But it all it was expressed as a need. And the feedback that I got was that I think all of my friends and family, I'm confident enough to say all of my friends and family had said, 
was I didn't complain at all through it. I didn't go into why me. I just was like, okay, there's got to be, I'm sure there's a reason that all this will make sense one day. Me asking certain questions, I get this again, something else I, I think I learned I could control was me asking certain questions of understanding or this or that wasn't going to help at that point in time. Sorry to interrupt, but how did you avoid that? How did you avoid not going into the why me? <laughs> I like why me. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I do too. I'm not going to lie, I do too. But I thought about it. I got really, I got in that moment that I had limited energy. I really got how tired I was. I think once the doctor said, have you been tired? And I was like, yes. And then when it all sunk in, I just had this, I just got how tired I was. And I thought every ounce of energy that I have needs to go into surviving and me spending energy on why is this happening to me at that particular point was not going to be useful and so for me it wasn't an emotional decision it was a practical one where I just didn't have it I didn't have the energy to feel sorry for myself I don't know if that makes it any better or worse but I just didn't I didn't have the energy to feel sorry for myself I was like I can't I live in a country where my family doesn't live I have friends over there of course but I'm like I have to survive this there's just no other option I don't have the option and I worked full-time full full-time I was leading teams in an advertising agency at the time with big clients that I would I was working 12, 13, 14 hours a day. That was normal. And I got injected straight back into my life when I got back to the US where I just thought about pragmatically, I don't have time to feel sorry for myself. That doesn't mean I didn't have meltdowns. It doesn't mean that I didn't know I wasn't unpolite at times where people were trying to help and it just wasn't working and I was like, ah, and I'd lose it. But those times were isolated, I think. Those times were isolated. They were compacted into specific moments where I would reach my max. So it was definitely a very human experience, but I did learn that I could control that by really thinking about it pragmatically and where I was going to spend my effort and my time to to get the biggest impact in saving myself. And I think that's something that no matter if anyone is even going through a medical crisis or not, hopefully that's useful to apply uh, because at those moments your energy is zapped. You feel like I don't have anything left in me, but I'm still needed and I'm still having to push forward. Yeah, for me, it was a pragmatic decision of where am I going to spend my energy? When you're in that kind of situation, it must be very difficult because you've got so many thoughts and emotions of your own that you need to process. And then you're getting all this information from all the medical doctors and specialists and whoever else. The there has to be so much to process. How do you handle all that? What was your technique for doing that? Because I know from personal experience, when I heard that my mum had pancreatic cancer, 
there was only so much I could take on because there's just all this stuff going on and my brain seemed to shut down as well <laughs> from the shock of it. It just wasn't working. How did you deal with all that? Yeah, I can definitely appreciate and I'm really sorry, first off, that your mom had to go through that, that a similar circumstance because it can be, as to your point, it's extremely shocking and it's a lot to process. I created really strong partnerships with my doctors. And first off, I chose doctors who were emotionally intelligent, not just masters in their fields, not just the best of cardiology or the best nephrologists for kidneys, but also those that had the same value system as I did and the emotional intelligence to recognize when I could handle things and when I couldn't. And one of the agreements that we made inside of that was the agreement that I would only take in information, they would only give me information that was enough for me to take the next decision in the process. One step at a time, no averages, no standards, no mediums, because my, my saying back to them was, I'm not average. I don't need averages. And I said, I am an expert in my body. You are an expert in medicine. We're two human beings that are sharing this particularly sacred and traumatic experience at this particular point in time. And I'd love for us to approach it like that as two people in partnership, just trying to figure this thing out. So you share with me what you know, I'll share with you what I know. We look at it like a creative solution that we need to come up with. And we only take in the information that is relevant for the next decision that I needed to make. And that was the agreement we had. There were times where, for example, when I found out my heart was failing, that was just like, over overload not even that would work at that point point. and my doctor saw that and he said I have the game plan you go live your life I will text you and tell you be here be there be wherever I need you to be you go and that's it Julia the rest of the time you live your life and I was like I can do that and he was like great so we would set up little things like that really helped me to maneuver whatever that point and period of time was based on me knowing what I could handle and what I could. It must have been because I know for a lot of people, certainly older generations will look on doctors as they know stuff and you shouldn't, you don't want to offend one doctor by going finding another doctor and then you don't want to tell that doctor what to do and all the rest of it. How did, did that come up for you? And if it did, how did you move beyond that? This is where I had to be my own person. And I, what I mean by that is when you have that best friend who like won't let you make a mistake, your best friend is, I don't care what anyone says, you're not going to do that. I'm going to stick up for you. And like they're always are the one that sticks up for you, right? The best friend that would never let you get treated any other way than to the best option that you have. 
that's what I had to be for myself. And that's where I had to take decisions from that place, from the place of if I was my own bestie, where I was like, we're getting through this and we're going to do it. If that was the person that I was going to be for me, what would I consider? What would I take into account? It's not to say that I didn't consider the feelings of doctors, but it is to say that if a doctor was going to be offended because I was going to look for a different doctor, then that that is exactly the emotional capacity that I was not looking for. It was that exact marker that would tell me that doctor was never going to be right for me. And if a doctor was going to get offended by something that I did, literally was the red flags for me that would say, here it is. This is what it looks like. And so that's what how I approached it was I'm my own best friend. I need to be. These are life-saving decisions. And mine was obvious life-saving, right? When an organ fails, it's life or death. But what we don't realize is often in those circumstances, we are making life-saving decisions, but we don't think of it like that because we're not necessarily in a burning crisis. But yet, if you accumulated all of the little decisions that we made to that point, it actually, they are actually your life decisions, right? These are actually moments in time that matter. The people that you're surrounded by, most of the time, it matters. It matters who you're spending your time with, even a doctor. Even if you're super healthy, that's so sacred. It's your body. So for me, I had to be really my own advocate and consistently remind myself, this is, you are fighting for your life. So you have to make the decisions that are right for you. And if someone gets offended, that person is exactly the type of person that wasn't going to be able to handle taking care of you because they were going to make decisions that were going to be right for themselves to not be offended versus right for me to live. And that's, I, I had to, it was a consistent reminder, not easy, but a consistent reminder. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not easy, is it? Because it, particularly as women, we tend to be a bit people-pleasing, well, quite a lot people-pleasing half the time. And so to be in that situation where it's a choice between us being happy or somebody else being happy it's difficult it's difficult to go okay I'm going to keep myself happy here because a lot of us aren't a trained that's wrong but in this situation it's right. the time when you have to most look after yourself and it's got to be so confronting to do that and but at the same time it kind of ties in with what you were saying about having to put your emotions to one side and just deal with the what needed doing right now. It's in that realm as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it still takes me practice. It still takes me checking myself. And it's funny, it's the simplest things. Like when someone says, where do you want to go to eat? And it's like, well, wherever you want to go. But I, I had to, I would have to stop myself and think, no, actually, what do I want to eat today, really? 
And I, it was this, I would make sure to practice even in the smallest of things so that when it did come to me being in a doctor's appointment and when I was trying to process like all of this really big information, it was a practice that would kick in and I would remember, wait a minute, what do I actually want? I think the other thing we forget too is that we don't have to know what we want in that moment. We can always say, you know what, I actually need some time to think about how I want to do that and come back to you when I've figured it out. We also feel like the pressure, right? Like sometimes it feels like I need to make a decision right now. I need to like, so I just pick whatever they said and go with that. But that's also another thing. It was a lot of practice. I felt like it was like cardio. It was like practicing, just putting in the reps of, wait, stop. Do I really? like this? Is this what I really want? Is this, does it feel right? And I started to really get to know my body as well and really be able to hear when something didn't feel right, I'd get a little stomach zing and I'd be like, no, I don't think, I don't know. It sounds like it could be, but I don't know. Something in me would just say no. And it did. It takes a lot of practice. It, it does. It's not an easy thing. But you're right, we are culturally, I think some, sometimes in some cultures, we're so trained that the right thing to do is to you be kind to others and please others. But I do think that there is a balance. Uh, the doctors really admired it. Like they, none of, the, none of my doctors were ever offended. They admired it. And their feedback to me was if, I had all of my patients taking this on like you do, speaking up and telling me these things that are concerning you. It would make it so much easier for me to do my job because I'd be able to know where they're at and how they really feel about something versus them just smiling and saying, okay, if that's what you say I want to do, all right. But they're like when they really do share that, no, actually, this doesn't feel right. Is there another way? Is there another option? I don't like this. Is there something else? I'm nervous that you've only done three procedures and not 10. Should I be concerned? Like having those kinds of conversations, they really appreciated it. But again, it came back to the fact that they didn't have any ego in it. They really were like, look, whatever is going to have you feel good and feel comfortable about your own care and your own decisions, I'm an advocate for that. So I think part of it is also that I, it wasn't every doctor wasn't like that, hence why I ended up with the ones I did. To me, it's clear, as you were talking, what I really got present to was the fact that you took responsibility and how much easier in a way that must have made things for the doctors. And But you took responsibility without, oh, how can I say this? I can't quite put my finger on it, without taking control and without you still allowed people to contribute to you, but you were also responsible for everything. That's how it's landing for me. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's funny, I haven't heard someone put it like that before, but this is what my executive training did. I've led teams my whole life, like my whole career. Sometimes I've done that badly and other times I've really succeeded. And I think that's what it taught me was how do you 
rally people, no matter how much experience they have, whether it's their first job or whether they're super seasoned, how do you bring them all together and let them do their mastery? But ultimately you are in control of the outcome or you are accountable of the outcome. I think that's where my executive training really came in very handy in me actually leading my doctor team because it ended up being six doctors. They call themselves the Avengers in a a fun way of bringing together the Avengers. And each of them, if they weren't connected, I connected them to make sure that if something was, even if I have a cold, there's three people that get an alert that says, this is what's happening, just to keep tabs and make sure that everything is good. And having done that, It was really my executive training that kicked in and went into play of really learning that these, they're amazing doctors. And I think sometimes we forget that we have so much love, care, and mastery around us that when you really can extract what everyone is great at and come together as a unit, that miracles can happen. And this happened to be one where it was like we had to, there was no choice other than life or death. And so I think it was exemplified to the nth degree because of the gravity of what we were dealing with. But I think we all have examples in various areas where even in like a best friend group, what someone is great at, there's always one person that's the awesome entertainer that is always the life of the party. And there's always one that is amazing at drinks. They just know how to do the drinks and one that's great at setting the ambience and the music and they always get the playlist. It felt like that. It really did feel like each of us with a mastery. And having done my due diligence at the beginning and having really gotten to know the doctors and selected the doctors that had the same value system as I did, that was way more important that I knew that they were going to take decisions for me in the same way that I would, which gave us an even footing and gave me the ability to just be able to be sick when I was sick and be good when I was good and just feel all the feelings and do all of that while I knew that they had the medical stuff under control and they would let me know if they needed me to make a decision or to do something or have me give me a heads up on where to go. But like you said, they had a game plan and they were confident it could be executed What support do you give other people now? Because that's been the next step that you've taken to support other people and guide them through how they can behave, what they can do, behave is not the right word, but what they can do in this kind of situation, the steps that they can take. Talk to me about that side of things. Yeah, so I wrote a mini ebook, and the ebook is really about my story as a bit of a case study and it's called life support and it's a very pragmatic guide to anybody who finds themselves in a medical crisis and it expands out on just some of the things that I did that I got feedback that it was unique in the way in which I approached it it was a little bit different and it was very empowering for both the doctors and for others that have gone through similar It's such a gift and a privilege for me to be here, to be getting phone calls from people and to be getting requests from people that will call and say, look, my my brother just found out he has X, Y, Z. How do I support him? And a lot of people, a lot of people find themselves in these situations. They just don't know what to do. 
And so I put it all in an ebook. The website is medical-crisis.com. And I also, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, they're able to, I have a website for myself that they can just find me on shinaperera.com. And I spend a lot of time helping people that are going through this because, as I said, some of these decisions can be game-changing in the outcomes. And no matter what the outcome, the journey of arriving at that point being one that you feel in control of and that you feel like you've done the way that you know how to do best. And that's really what I'm passionate about is that people feel the experience of life, that they're living how they want to, really how they want to, without feeling like they've compromised at any given point. So that's what that's what I have found purpose in. And I really enjoy helping people do that. And I love hearing people's stories because I do think that you, similar to what you've been doing with your podcast, you giving people the opportunity to share themselves and share the story and hear other people's stories makes whatever we each individually go through a little bit easier, I think, even just to know, oh, there's someone else out there that's dealing with something. It doesn't even have to be what you're dealing with, but someone else is out there and they're dealing with something as well. There's a me too in it that just feels, I think it feels a little bit more like I can do it. So whenever I hear someone else's story, it also invigorates me. It reminds me of where I've come from and it reminds me that everything is going to work out for the future. It always does, but it does remind me of that a little bit more when I hear someone else's story. And it just gives me a connection to we're all human. So hopefully what I have written down in a book is helpful and it's useful. But it's, I wrote it in a way that even if a person just reads one chapter, that they take just one component of it, that it's a pragmatic thing that they can apply to whatever it is that they're dealing with. Oh, thank you. And the, all of the links that you've spoken about will be on the webpage that goes with the podcast so people don't have to go back and write it down. They're all there for you, as well as a link to get the book too, which is just tell me something that's been coming up for me. How old were you when this all happened? So when my kidneys failed, I had just turned 35 and I got my heart and my kidney just after turning 40. Wow. Wow. That, yeah. <laughs> you are pretty extraordinary, I've got to say, and I am so grateful to be part of your life because we're going to be doing work together and I'm so excited about that I have to say and I'm just I just feel really grateful to have met you yeah thank you so much Karen I feel the same way I feel the same way I love what you have built and your expertise is second to none in the podcast space and I just think it's amazing that you are helping people with their platforms because like I say, when you are able to hear from someone else and relate, it just makes anything that a person is dealing with just that little bit easier. Yep, it does. Thank you so much, Shana. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure being here with you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. 
And don't forget, if you've been thinking how great it would be to have your own podcast so that you can interview guests and speak to people about the topics that you're interested in personally, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is for you to start podcasting. There's a download on how to start a podcast for free waiting there for you. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.